0: Um, we come to this, we come to chapter 38, and it seems uh, almost to be a parenthesis uh, to what we uh, are going through. We're going through Joseph's life and his toldot, and um, we come to this section, and it seems to just be out of the blue, talking about Judah and his life, and, um, and it covers many years of that life, uh, but we... We're able to see last week at the end uh, through the last section of chapter 37. We saw many connections between Hagar and Ishmael and Joseph. We were able uh, to make the connection between Joseph's being thrown into a pit and Jesus going into the heart of the earth for his church. The brothers feasted while Joseph was uh, setting a paradigm that would be fulfilled by Jesus. No longer, as we will continue to see, will the brothers be sent away. Rather, the younger brother will redeem the older brothers. This is important to see as we often get the doctrine of substitution confused with substituting one pitcher in the fourth inning for another. Rather, Jesus didn't take us out of the game because we were botching it up even though we are. He uh, he became us covenantally and took our place in receiving the righteous wrath of God. Judah sold his brother... To the Gentiles who sold him into slavery, the brothers deserved death in the pit. The brothers deserved enslavement in Egypt. Rather than being a bomb to his brothers, he goes down with the bomb to Egypt. Bomb, B-A-L-M, not bomb. So my southern sometimes gets in the way. We now will get confirmation that that this more uh, that this move was needed. Here we look at the history of Judah and Tamar. This, for some, is a difficult chapter to get around as, like I said, it seems to be a parenthesis. Yet, if we look at all that this points to and connect it to Joseph, then it is easy to see that there is a comparison here made. We're going to see a contrast, uh, almost a reverse contrast, to Joseph. Joseph is righteous. Joseph resists sexual sin. Joseph doesn't grab at power. Joseph doesn't abuse the bride. Joseph doesn't do these things. And we're going to see, in contrast, what Judah did and what the church, when she is not righteous, always does. And so we're going to see that this uh, helps us to understand how righteous Joseph was, how uh, difficult his life becomes in Egypt um, Judah, the heir apparent to Jacob, shows himself both an Esau and a son of Joktan. Thus, in comparison to Joseph, Judah is disqualified. We will see first that Judah's life is deception, lives in deception rather, and intermarries with the Canaanites and has a Canaanite as a companion. Then apparently Judah raises his sons as Canaanites and they refuse to live according to the law. This causes their deaths and rather than facing God, Judah seeks to make a name outside of God with, uh, with his own power. The wife bride dies, and this makes Judah, Judah's manipulation an attack on the bride in his daughter-in-law. This forces the bride to play the harlot and trick the devil. This should once again remind us of the isaac Rebecca deception. We will see that in this one is vindicated while the other loses their place. This also should remind us of Samson. The church goes and evangelizes, and then when things do not go as we hoped, then we play the harlot with the lost culture. This is what the Jews were doing in the first century when Jesus came. It is what the church is doing with our culture today. We must call for repentance, and everywhere we are guilty, we must personally repent. If you will, please stand to honor the reading of God's Word and remain standing as we ask God the Holy Spirit to bless Amen. the preaching of His Word this morning. Genesis chapter 38, starting in verse 1, the Word of the Lord reads, It came to pass in that time, at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hara. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son, and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Er, uh, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er... Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that, that, there, that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass, when he went into her, his brother's wife, that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, Therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now it happened, no, now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah he and his friend Hira the Dulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to, to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, He thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff, which is in your hand, then he gave. Then he gave them to her, and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away, and laid aside her veil, and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend the Adulamite, to receive his pledge, and from the woman's hand, receive his pledge from the woman's hand but he did not find her then he asked the woman uh, the men of that place saying where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside and they said there was no harlot in this place thus far the reading of god's word let us now go to the lord in prayer glorious and almighty god we thank you father for this your word we pray lord god that we will look for christ everywhere that we will seek him till he's found and that we will see father How we are and are not to act. We pray, Father God, that we will love you and our mother more than ourselves. And we will show this by the way that we live our lives. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Jacob moves to live in deception. Verses 1 through 5. We are told about the time that Joseph was sold. Judah departs from his brothers. Now... It will prove out that Judah is more righteous than his brothers. That's going to be no doubt. When we get to chapter uh, 45, you're going to find that out. You're going to see Judah is the most righteous of his brothers outside of Joseph. And uh, the one that eventually gets the authority over his brothers. And he may have decided to leave the family because of the Joseph incident. It's said by some that Jacob really... I mean, Joseph... Mm-mm, Judah... so many J's in here. Judah... <laughs> could not live with himself with what he had done. He couldn't face his father every day. And I get that. I believe that's maybe part of it. You know, if we wanted to uh, psychoanalyze the, the text, we could probably come up with that and see how that would be. Uh, Judah uh, was the main conspirator in selling his brother, and he uh, probably feels shame about doing this to his father, especially as his father's walking around with sackcloth and ashes and weeping over his son. So I can see that that is possibly true. Yet we see here that it might be just as likely that Judah went away from his brothers to live outside of the community. Judah wanted to do things his way, and he did not want the family to interfere. And this is exactly why most people leave the fellowship of the church. Why don't people come to church? You ask them. You you, you say you're a believer. You say you love Jesus. Why do you not attend worship? And they say, I don't know. I'm tired. It's the only day of the week I get to rest. It's supposed to be a day of rest, not a day of work. And they give you all these excuses. But if you would get right down to the heart of it, most of it probably has to do with they know if they come in here, they may have their sins revealed. And they'll have to either kill those sins or be disciplined. They know that they'll have to deal with that sin. And so rather than coming and being with the community of believers, they hide themselves in their home. And they make excuses, right? Now, we have some that would just as well come here. They worship, but then they don't have anything to do with the rest of us for the same reason. We have to understand this is what we're gonna see in Judah today and then next week. He did not want to be in the presence of his father because his father was the priest of God, his father worshiped. On a regular basis. His father had his family do the things that pleased God. And Judah did not want to be there. He did not want to be in their presence. He wanted to do things his way. Right? Judah likely would not have been given a hard time by his father, but old boy, his mother. Right? His mother would have held him to account. Leah would have called him to righteousness. Judah wanted to be like the culture, and so he went after that culture away from the covenant community. He visits his friend Hira the Adullamite. This man was a Canaanite, and we have no reason to believe that he himself was a believer. He will play a central part in this history, though we know little about him and will not hear from him ever again. While there, Judah meets the daughter of Shua, and they marry. It's a great thing. We never get this lady's name. Uh, She's just the daughter of Shua, right? Judah's wife. Now, here we have Judah marrying a Canaanite girl. First, we should see that this, uh, this as being a son of Joktan. You remember the Joktanites encouraged the Sethites And the Sethites married those that they found pretty. The sons, I mean the daughters of men. And they had mighty men from them. Not half angels, half men. Um, But, unbelievers. It did not matter that she was a Canaanite. And it had been said by both Abraham and Isaac that you should not marry from the Canaanites. So, here at the very least... Here at the very least, the revelation that Judah had from his grandparents and his great-grandparents, he ignored. So he breaks that word. But we know that Abraham and Isaac got that word from God. So Judah's disobeying. He's being sinful. He's committing the sin of intermarriage. And... It steps us one step closer. We're at the last sin now. Remember, it was brother-brother sin last. They were grasping at authority, the first sin. They were grasping. I mean, they had the brother-brother sin last week with the uh, sin they had against their brother. They symbolically killed him. And now we have the intermarriage sin. So we're at the third level. means judgment is coming. Judgment has to fall. We're going to see that it falls on Joseph. All right? So Jacob is also an Esau making his stomach his God. He only cares about what he desires. That is what rules him. So we, we need to understand something. When we, we talk about idols, we, we confessed bowing before idols today. As a covenant community, we knelt down before God and we said, we have knelt down before idols. And you go, I have no carved images of any gods in my house. But have you bowed down to money? Have you bowed down to a good name, to success? Have you placed that over loving God? Has that become more important to you than following Christ? To Judah, his desires, his appetites, being met his way was his idol. He had become an Esau. Second, we need to see that this is related to Samson who married a Philistine girl. We're going to get into this a little more as we go. But just briefly, in that case, it was a form of evangelism. And I'll show you that when we read the text. But rather than the girl trusting God, she returned to trusting the Philistines and was burned with fire, Judges 14:1 through fifteen six. This was... Judah going after the Canaanite culture. He wanted to be like the Canaanites. He wanted the things they had. He wanted to look like them. He wanted to hang out with them. Right? You know, I had a, I had a friend in school, right? At, in the 10th grade, all of a sudden, he started wearing cowboy boots and cowboy hat and big old buckles and going to rodeos. And I'm like, dude, what's the deal? Well, I'm, I'm going to be a cowboy. Okay, well, great. And he took on that culture. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not getting on the man. I'm just saying you you do that. Sometimes that happens. And that's okay, right, if that's what you want to do. But this is what Judah was doing. Judah wanted to be a Canaanite. And we see that there's a connection between the two cultures, between the Hebrew and the Canaanite. They had one thing in common. Most of them were both shepherds. They had these cultural things together and and I can say though I work with a lot of very wicked people we have things in common because we have the same trade we can have conversations and get along and we you know we can sit down and have a beer together because we deal with some of the same troubles the same issues right the same things you know we lose fingernails on a regular basis from a hammer right we know what it's like even though And it would be very easy for us to fall into this friendship that leads me away from the covenant community if I'm not careful. I can't make them my closest confidants. I can't tell them the troubles of my home because they will begin to speak their Canaanite culture into my head. Cannot have that. Cannot have that. We have to keep that separate. I can share the gospel with them and I can be friendly with them and we can even have a beer together, but they cannot be my closest friends. Here, Hira had become Judah's closest friend and Judah began to fall in love with and chase after, to go after this Canaanite culture. He might have justified himself by saying that he was evangelizing this woman while really just lusting after her. Right? Right? And it may actually have been in the case that she made a profession, right? But Judah here represents Israel as a whole. And we're going to see why it was necessary for the brothers and the whole family to leave Canaan. Why it was important that they did this. It was very important that they leave the culture because they were getting uh, sucked in by the culture. They were becoming like the Canaanites. We've already seen this. We saw this in chapter 34 when they slaughtered a whole town uh, because of their pride, right, and stole these people. We see it that they did their brother the way they did. That's Canaanite moves right there, throwing your brother in a pit and selling him, right? And here we see it continue, and it gets worse. It gets worse. The Canaanite girl bears three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. So as Joseph was gone, these Canaanite sons were in the line to take the sheikdom. Judah had done like the Jokanites and had taken a daughter of men rather than one of his relatives. This is because Judah was living in Chezeb. You say, what does that got to do with anything? Well, this city was near Adullam, and the name means deceitful or lie. Judah was living a lie. Now, I want you to understand why I say that. Anytime that we live contrary to the word of God, we're living a lie. And what I mean by that is the Bible tells us what is reality. It reveals to us what is really true of God's creation and what we really need and how we need to do it and obtain it. When we try to do things according to the world, right? Whether it's listening to Oprah opine about how to be just or have uh, you know, the LBGT community tell us what love is, we know that the Bible tells us these things, what they really are, how they really are to be obtained. We only know what justice is from the Scripture. But when we go to humanists, to tell us how we should live justly, we're living a lie. It's a lie. It's not true. It's not real. They're making up fairy tales and we are taking them in. And unfortunately, in our culture right now, and I mean in the church culture, that is one of the biggest things we've been doing over the last 120 years. Since about the 1880s, which is a lot longer than I just said, we have, been, we have been allowing the human culture, the humanist culture, to tell us, rather than Moses, we go to uh, Sigmund Freud, right? Rather, rather than to Jesus, right, we go to some health, wealth, and prosperity guy. Rather than read the Bible, we have politicians tell us how we should feel and act and, and do in certain situations. And the church has been guilty of this for years. For years. We've had men stand up here and tell people psychology rather than scripture. Or they'll psychologize the text. We will not try to say that again. We, we And we sit and drink it up. Because it sounds smart. And we can get into academia and have conversations with really, really smart atheists, which means they're fairy tale spinners. Right? I mean, and and that is what Judah's doing. He's living in a lie. Judah believed that he could choose to live in the world and at the same time build the kingdom. You cannot by power. You cannot by might and you cannot by craftiness build the kingdom of God. The only way we build the kingdom of God is through service. It's the only way. Now, I'm jumping ahead for two weeks, but we're going to see in the story of Joseph that you gain dominion through service. It's what Jesus said. And Judah did not want to do that. He thought that he by his own might, could build the kingdom. Judah chooses his family over God's family, verses 6 and 7. Judah chooses a wife for Er, Er, but we are not told if she was a Canaanite or not. I believe the Holy Spirit does not tell us on purpose, as she will become the bride. I do think she was, but she might have come from Judah's household back with his brothers. Either way, I believe she converts. Ur was evil, and like the antediluvian, or those before the flood, uh, God judges him. The same phraseology, the same kind of speech. It's not word for word, but if you go back to chapter 6, you can kind of see a relation between every one of their thoughts and intentions were evil always, to he was evil, so God killed him. You see that same concept is, is in mind here. God looked down on Ur, and he was evil. He was a wicked man. And so God killed him, right? So it's really close to that. At this point, we need to have an excursus, that is a sidebar, into what is called leverite marriage. The word leverite or lever comes from the Latin, which means brother uh, or duty of the brother. And and, and, And we need to look at this to understand this passage And we need to try to understand its meaning for us in the New Testament. We find the law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. Turn in your Bible there. Deuteronomy chapter 25... 5 through 10 will be our text. Deuteronomy chapter 25, starting in verse 5, the word of the Lord reads, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, Take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. That in the Latin version is the Leverite. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders to the elders and say, "My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother." Then the elders of this city of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, "I do not want to take her," then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders Remove his sandal from his feet, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Thus far the reading of God's word. We see several things that helps us in our text. Though I do not want to expound this entire text, I do want to hit the high notes and again... Point to its New Testament application. First, we see that the law supports our frat- fratriarchal understanding of Old Testament society. That is, the father and the brothers had connections in ruling, right? The brothers, when they come of age, had a say in the home with the father. And the father and the and the sons could be interchangeable. This means that uh, This understanding, as as in verse 5, they had to be brothers which lived together. This means that the brothers would likely have been around the same age and would have had a big say in the selection of his brother's wife as he might have the duty to marry her. So let's think about this for a second. Jonathan and Benjamin are close in age. Jonathan has a girl that he fancies and he's courting her. And Benjamin uh, decides that he's never going to marry this girl. She rakes on his nerves. She could never be his wife. He would have a say in that decision. Now, it doesn't mean Jonathan couldn't marry her, but he would have to take it under strong advisement whether or not he should. Right? If something happens to me, I want my name to continue in Israel, so I would want somebody that my brother could love and cherish. And have a child, through, at least one son, through, right? So there would there would be that he would have, he would have some say in it. This was a real marriage. The brother took her as his wife. This likely would have meant, even if he was already married, <laughs> she would become his second wife. All the children of this marriage would be the Levirate's children, but the first male. Uh, who would take his father's name. This had more to do with the name of the dead brother rather than the land holdings. You get really confused if you read uh, some of the commentators. They make a big deal about, well, you know, it, it has to do with the Jubilee year and going back to the people, the original family, the original tribe, and all that. None of that is said in Deuteronomy. The reason is to build up the name of your brother in Israel so that his name's not lost. It was the custom of the firstborn to take the name of his father. So Jonathan wouldn't be Jonathan, he'd be Robert in this culture. And if Jonathan died and Benjamin had to marry his wife, his widow, then Benjamin would name that son Jonathan. You see it? You make it? And what we have to understand is the name of the person was that whole person. So yes, there were holdings and inheritance that came with it. So if you're the firstborn and you die and your son is raised up by your brother, he becomes the firstborn. He gets your double portion when your when when his grandfather died. All right? So the the now this was has more to do with that and though this was included, And the reason we know this is that the land is not mentioned here because the land had not been doled out yet. Judah had no land possessions in Canaan, no, no real ones, uh, not like they're going they to get when we get to Joshua. And the land of Canaan was not theirs yet. If the primary function had been land holdings, then this would have been Judah building a rail around a roof that didn't exist in the wilderness before they entered the land. You see the analogy? Also, it was something we will see that Tamar thought Judah should enforce. It was something the Canaanites did as well. This culture expected Leverite marriage for the widow, though she was likely not a Hebrew. There was shame in not doing this as the woman would expose or uncover the foot of the brother who would not be the lever for her. Now, we, we have a, a great text that points out how I, we come to this conclusion. Uh, we have Saul going into the cave with David in there and David refusing to kill him while he's using the bathroom. Now, in the English, it's relieve yourself. You know, so uh, Saul went in there to relieve himself in the cave. But literally in the Hebrew, Saul went into the cave and uncovered his feet. Why? Why? Because it was symbolic, it was a way for the Hebrews to say he revealed his genitalia. He exposed his nakedness to use the bathroom. Remember, the Hebrews wore long robes. If he had a call of nature, it would have been very beneficial for him to remove that long robe and basically be naked from the waist down. He was uncovering his feet. Remember we said... The foot's connected to the thigh, which is connected to the genitalia. And all of that means that same thing. It's exposing of nakedness. So she takes his foot off to expose symbolically his nakedness. It is symbolically now, symbolically, the same as if she would have took him to the, to the gates of the city, which would be like our city square, or city uh, central part of the town, and pulled his pants down and exposed his nakedness and said, look, he's unable to perform his duty, and she basically is calling him impotent. Tell it He can't do it. He can't do it. So the widow would expose her uh, brother-in-law's nakedness in public and claim impotence. We are not given very much detail in this law, uh, probably because it was not something that we would continue to use in the New Testament. We didn't need all these deep details because the church wasn't going to be perpetual. It's very just glossed over, and, and the great thing is it's glossed over because most of the people, when it was given, knew what it was. That It had been practiced for years. Generations had done this. And so when it's mentioned, they knew exactly, oh, this is the Levirate law. Well, well, we, we've been doing this forever, okay? Right? But At least since Judah, right? And so it, it was not something they needed a lot of detail to get because they knew it already. Uh, this was for a sign and a symbol of the coming of the younger brother who would perform the duty of the Levite to the bride. Now, follow me. We saw a glimpse of this in the naming of Cain, as Eve said that Yahweh had given her another Ish. Ish is husband. Right? It is man, but in the, in the context of Genesis 1 through 5, it, the word is used uh, synonymously with husband. Because you had uh, had the man and his woman, Ish and Isha. Eve's husband died in the fall, at least symbolically. Thus the bride is a widow and cannot have offspring. But now Jesus has come and we are raised up, not just replaced by a new race, but made a new race through our mother, the church. You you ever thought about the fact that there is no man who's ever been saved or ever will be saved outside of the church? And you go, well, wait a minute. What about Campus Crusades? That ain't the church. No church rules over that. Yeah, but what you have to understand is those people are in the church. They may not be in this church, and that may not be an organization of the church, but they worship somewhere. They go somewhere. Well, what about if you're on a desert island and... Find a Bible, and that guy reads the Bible and gets saved. Great, but somebody had to print the Bible. You cannot be saved absent the church. You cannot be born without a mother. It's not possible. So Judah gives his second son Onan to raise up a son to his name, or to the name of Er, his brother, through Tamar. Verses eight to eleven. This tells us two things. First. We see that the Levirate law was in force before Deuteronomy was written. Second, this was uh, for the name to be carried on, which in this culture was the whole person. So very much the same thing we need to understand. When we when we pray and and we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying in the person of Christ. It's, it's not just saying, hey, Jesus sent me, I can talk to you. It's, hey, Lord, I... I am your son, hear my prayer. I am Jesus. I am in Jesus when I pray. If I'm praying in Jesus' name, I'm praying in the whole person of Christ. And the whole person of Christ is ever on the throne with God the Father. And so therefore he can hear us. If you pray it in my name, he says. And that was the whole person of Christ. So Onan Onan decided to not give her a son. And we we have another attack on the bride. Onan didn't love Tamar, nor did he care about his brother. He only wanted to gain the inheritance. He did not want to do his duty. We, we We see the same thing with the Sanhedrin. They did not love the bride. They did not love the church. They did not want what's best for her. They only wanted to get what she produced. They only wanted seed from her. They're just like Satan in the garden. Here he decides that since uh, he was not going to gain the inheritance through doing his duty, he didn't want to do his duty. Onan then would have met on the ground. Now the thing that we want to notice, this was not a one-time event. God is not uh, one who is rash... He's long-suffering and merciful. We should see that this means every time, or the text should read whenever he went into her. Every time he had sex with Tamar, he would not do what he needed to do to get her pregnant. Clean that up a little bit for you. He emitted on the ground. He spilled his seed on the ground. Thus, it was that Onan had decided that he would never give his brother a son, and then lose the chance at the inheritance. He was content with disobeying the law of God for his own benefit. God, help us when we do this. Because it'll get you killed. It'll get you killed. God was displeased with this action and he killed Onan also. Thus, two of Judah's sons are dead. Only Shelah remains. Now, We'll psychologize for a second. We can now understand the frame of mind of Judah. And we do this all the time. If this happens, all is lost. We begin to think that way, right? We begin to, to think, God, if you allow this one thing to happen, you've let all these other things happen, and if this one thing happens, it's all over. All the hopes, all the work I've done, everything I've sought after, everything I've strived for, if you allow this one thing to happen, I might as well give up. And so then you began to try to manipulate the situation so that that one thing doesn't happen. So that this sin's not found out or this thing is not done or th- whatever, whatever it is. Right? He, he began to figure out there's a connection between the death of my two sons and it's this chick Tamar. She got to go away. Right? Right? And it's stupid, right? It's stupid to think that Tamar somehow had something to do with his two wicked sons dying. Rather than looking at his sons, he's thinking, It's her fault. She is a black widow. That chick is dangerous. Send her back to her daddy. Which is wrong. He should have never sent her away. She was his daughter. She was living in his home under the authority and protection of his sons who had died. She was his daughter. If he was going to do anything else besides give... Sheila, he should have given her to another. He should not have left her a widow. This was wicked. This was wicked and fearful. Now again, we don't want to be too harsh on Judah. We do this. We do things out of fear. We do things purely out of fear. Why would you do that? Because if I didn't, this was going to happen. You don't know that. Obey the word. Obey the word. Now, I'm preaching to me more than y'all because I know the times that I do that. Judah feared that Sheila would die like his other brothers. This gives us several things to notice. First, like I said, Judah was not trusting God. When we act this way, we are acting outside of faith. And no matter if the action itself is sinful, our motive is. Anything done absent of faith is sin. Right? Why do you do what you do? If your answer is not, Jesus has told me so, and I trust Him, what you're doing is sin, even if it's righteous. That's hard for us to swallow, but we need to understand that's what we need. So, Father, I have faith, but help my unbelief. Right? We we should say that often. Second, Judah was not sensitive, sensitive to what the Lord was doing in judging his sons. The Lord has killed my two sons. Maybe it's that my sons are Canaanites and they deserve judgment. Maybe I've raised two Canaanites. And God said that all the Canaanites would be judged, and He's showing me that that's true. Third, (coughs) Judah put the perpetuation of his name above God's law. Plain and simple. Judah will not continue if my son dies. The seed will not continue. Now, contrast this to Abraham. Abraham took his son took him to Mount Moriah, bound him, put him on an altar, and was within seconds of killing him, even though he knew if he died, the promise would fail. No more Isaac, no more promise. But Abraham trusted God so much that he was willing to do what God commanded him to do, even though that's what it meant, because he knew that God could raise him from the dead. Judah had no such faith. He had no such faith in God. He was terrified for Sheila. If he dies, it's over. It's over. So rather than dealing with God, rather than Judah going to God and saying, What do we need to do here? <clears throat> I'm going to trust you. Please don't kill my son. Judah sought to manipulate the situation. All Judah cared about was the seed. He, he here would rather have his son than the kingdom. We we need to understand this. We're going to get to the point where we talk about her sin in a minute. But her sin, she was guilty of, but he was responsible for. Judah whores after Canaanite culture. Verses 12 through 15. The daughter of Shua dies and leaves a void in the seed line. We saw in Genesis 24 that when Sarah died, Isaac needed a bride. Rebekah took Sarah's place and this was symbolized by her getting Sarah's tent, remember? So now there was supposed to be Tamar with Sheila taking the place of the wife of Judah. But as we saw already, Judah didn't trust God. He wanted to do things his way. So he, does, he goes with a Canaanite friend to the sheep shearing. Now this was a time of feast and celebration. It's like our Thanksgiving. God has brought all this... This wool in, all these animals have reproduced and we have all these new lambs and we're going to celebrate by eating one or two of them and we're going to drink a lot. And that was what it was. That's what they did. They feasted and they celebrated. All sheep shearing cultures do this. It's just a thing. Judah now, around 50, placed himself in a bad situation and falls. This fall is comparable both to that of Samson and later to the nation of Israel, Before the exile. First, Samson gets a wife from the Philistines, which both was a means of evangelizing the nations and freeing Israel. Turn to Judges chapter 14. We'll read verses 1 through 4. If you get a chance today, read uh, chapters 14 through 16 um, to get the full range of it. Judges 14, starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord reads, Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman of Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife." Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren? No, there wasn't. Or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord or of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion. Over Israel. So it was going to be for deliverance and evangelism, right? When the girl is judged for not trusting God. Now, it, it, the girl begs Samson to tell her the answer to the riddle, right? Out of the eater came something sweet to eat, right? That was the riddle. Honey in the head of a lion. And he wouldn't tell her, wouldn't tell her, you don't love me, you hate me, they're going to burn my father's house down, blah, blah, blah. Well, he tells her. She betrays him and he has to pay like uh, 200 garments and changes of clothes and all this stuff. So he goes and kills 200 Philistines and brings it to them. Well, then when they find out that he did it and she was married to him, they go, burn her father's house down and burn her alive. What was the consequence? She didn't trust God. She didn't trust God. Right? So when that happens, Samson goes and he sleeps with a harlot in Judges 16.1. This is where he's trapped in the town. He takes the door and he, the gates off the city and he kills all the Philistines. This was his fall. He falls by rather than doing what God would have him to do, he fulfills his needs according to God, not according to God's word, but according to his own way. Then when Delilah uh, with delilah there comes the judgment of his bad evaluation if you misjudge with your eyes you lose your eyes God brings judgment when we go our own way Tamar is told that Judah what Judah was doing here the rightful bride was made to play the harlot to get what was rightfully hers right she should have sons that was hers that was it belonged to her Remember what we said about Rebecca? Rebecca said, I mean, uh, Rachel, Rachel said, if if Jacob takes a wife of the, uh, the uh, of the Canaanites, my life will be over. She didn't mean she would die. It meant the thing that she was born to do, she would lose. She wouldn't have that thing that she felt God had placed her to do, right? This is my calling, and God is going to take it away from me if he goes after Canaanite women. Right, so it was rightfully hers. So though this is sinful, right? Don't please, please don't think I'm trying to justify for her. more sins; she sins in a very bad way. But her sin is on Judah as the one who is responsible. He is the one who has cheated her. He is the one who has lied to her. He's deceived her and attacked the bride in this way. He didn't protect her. He didn't take care of her. He had led her contrary to God's word and deceived her. Though it was wrong for her to lay with him, the results were what should have been that is a seed bearer. She got the seed that she was supposed to have. Notice the emphasis on her face being veiled. This should remind us again of, Re- of Rebecca uh, who veiled her face when she saw Isaac. This is because marriage is a face-to-face thing. So do you ever wonder why we used to do the veil and remove another veil at on the day of the wedding, because it was symbolically saying to the families and to the church, they are now face-to-face, like God was face-to-face with Moses. It is an intimate, close relationship. This intimate, close relationship allows them to openly be naked before each other so that they will not have shame. So shame is found in the face right, and in the genitalia. Remember that in Deuteronomy... 25, shame is symbolized in the uncovering of the foot. It is also shown in the face. And God speaks a lot about the shame of face, especially in Israel, as they play the harlot uh, in the prophets. But here the veil is not removed. This is because the relations with a harlot is not marriage. It is not, like marriage should be, a face-to-face relationship. We will see in the next section that she removes it after the tryst was over. This also explains how it is that Judah did not know who she was. Judah loses his dominion. Verses 16 through 19, Tamar bargains with Judah as a harlot would. He offers her her a young goat. Once again, we see a kid of the goats used to deceive. This would be given at a later time, so Tamar asked Judah for a pledge or something of collateral. She asked for a very valuable thing, his signet, and his staff. Now, some of our translation has signet ring. It was not a ring, it was a round cylinder about this long. It had a uh, thong tied at the top, which had a hole, and at the bottom uh, of this cylinder was his mark or his seal. He would press it into clay or into wax to say, This, this is me. So, this was his symbol of authority. Um, God also has sealed us and is pressing his image upon us. We read in Genesis 5 1 through 4. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So what we see is just as God did to us, men do with their children. Men do with their children uh, and women, of course. Um, And this, this is also used spiritually in the sacraments. God impresses us with Christ's image in baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're both called seals. We take on Christ's name in baptism, and we are made more into His image through communion. Ultimately, Christ gave these things willingly to His bride, the church. Christ gives us His signet in His sacraments, and he gives us his staff, which is his law. The staff, uh, the staff was a very nice thing as it would have been uh, decorated. He would, we would have put his markings on it, he would have put signs and symbols of his God on it. It was a symbol of his rule. He would have, uh, he, he would, he thought that he would get it back, but this was something that he should not have risked. It, it is much like Esau, his appetite became more important than his uh, heritage, his inheritance. Uh, This points to something else. Judah cared nothing for the bride, which he had left a widow. Judah, much like Satan with Eve, didn't love the bride, but only wanted her for the seed she could produce. He left her a widow, praise God for the younger brother. After the tryst, she gets up and removes her veil and returns uh, to her widow garments. Again, we see that garments have meaning in the ancient world. She dressed the part and she, that she really was. Judah whores after the Canaanite religion, verses 20 and 21. Judah sends his friend with the kid of the goats to receive back his pledge. The Adulamite cannot find her and asks the men where she went. The interesting thing that we need to see is that the word for harlot here has changed. In verse 15, the word is simply harlot, right? Common day word. But here the word means devotee harlot. Judah and his friend thought that Tamar was a temple harlot. So Judah is not only seeking to relieve his desires, he is worshipping with the Canaanites. Or at least that is what he thought. The men tell him that there was no temple prostitutes there. They knew of no such thing. And the Adulamite had to return with the kid and without the things Judah needed. Notice the progression. Judah leaves his father's authority and altar. He makes a Canaanite his best friend and marries a Canaanite woman. He raises at least two of his three sons to become Canaanites, probably all three. And he gives himself to their practices. Then Judah begins to worship their gods. This is why we must not leave the safety of our mother, the church. Had Judah done all these things with Leah around it likely would have been different. She would have reined him in and put him back straight. As it is, Judah lost everything, or so it seems. May God grant us to see when we are dwelling away from our brothers, to see the danger of hiding our sin from our mother. May Christ be seen in our brothers and sisters here at Holly Ridge, that that as we grow in love for Jesus, we will grow in love for them. May God cause us... To love the bride and mother and serve her all our days. May God impress us with his image and guide us with his law. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.